0: I would uh, give some introductory comments here. I'd like to ask if a Bill and, uh, and John would pass out something I rarely, rarely ever do, which is a sermon handout sheet, uh, something that parallels the message this morning. Uh, but it does uh, enable you to remember some things that are fairly complex in terms of the passage that we're dealing with this morning and the way I'm treating the passage that we're dealing with this morning. Secondly, I'd also say that um, at the beginning uh, of this section here, Mark chapter 13, I was overviewing it, and uh, most of the uh, Bible translators and then the commentators divided into five sort of sections, sort of five major paragraph units. And so I said you can expect five messages. But really, coming to this point of verse 24 and then looking to the end of the chapter, uh, I've decided that uh, with this handout... Uh, I can actually cover what I feel to be most necessary in covering this. And so this will be my concluding sermon on uh, what is called the Olivet Discourse this morning. So I'm just going to wrap this up this morning and uh, then we'll continue on in chapter 14 next week. So uh, the reading then of the Word of God this morning from Mark chapter 13. Uh, verse. Oh, and by the way, my, my wife encouraged me to say something like this don't read the handout yet. <laughs> but there may be a point that you want to refer to the handout while I'm preaching, and you're certainly uh, free to do that. Uh, but she thought, they won't listen to you if they're reading. And I said, well, at least they're not on their phones, you know. They, so Anyway, the Word of God, Mark chapter 13, beginning at verse 24, reading from the English Standard Version translation. But in those days... As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Father, uh, we would pray that we might stay awake, uh, not just for the sense of this message this morning, but stay awake in our lives, to have the vigilance, the diligence, to be faithful to Jesus throughout all of our lives. Uh, We would pray this, Father, not knowing the day nor the hour in which uh, things will come upon us. But this we do know, Father, that you've given us Jesus. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on him. Help us to run the race of this life in perseverance. This we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I entered this passage, I emphasized that my application concern primarily was to inoculate us from what I call the end times virus. Uh, that virus which gets people all excited about uh, reading into the headlines of the day the prophecies they think that they're reading about in the Bible. The idea that, and I've seen this many times, look at the Middle East, look at Russia, look at the headlines. Don't you see prophecy being fulfilled today right in front of you? Therefore, the time in which Jesus is coming back is now. Get ready, get ready, get ready. And I I wanted to inoculate us from that perspective uh, for reasons that I think I can say with great assurance. It's not a biblical perspective. Uh, It is part and parcel of this end times virus that is seeking after and looking for what we might call prophetic certainty. Now, the other concern is when we look at a passage like this or any passage of Scripture is actually to come to it with the right set of expectations. The expectations which Scripture would teach us to have, not that which we might just adopt for a lot of different reasons. Now, there is a very popular and prevalent view within our culture, American culture. It's been dominant in our culture for the good part of the 20th century. It basically says that concerning the second coming the coming of Christ, we can have prophetic certainty. Uh, The idea that we can, before these things would ever happen, use biblical prophecy to look into the future, to look into the future in a very precise way, uh, in a manner that demystifies everything that's going on, that we can actually name countries, name regions, name the size of armies, all of those different kinds of things we find caught up in the prophetic the writings about prophetic literature in our day. The idea, or the assumption, is that there are biblical interpreters who can interpret biblical prophecy with certainty. Now, the desire itself is common, and perhaps it's normal. Perhaps it's part and parcel as to what human beings are like. It may be what's going on with the disciples themselves when Jesus announces that The temple is going to be destroyed, not one stone left upon another. So at the beginning of chapter 13, verse 4, they raise this question. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? Now we know that this passage in Mark 13 is paralleled in Matthew. It's paralleled in Luke. And so Matthew says their question is like this. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? and of the end of the age. Uh, Luke uh, adds no more information there. Luke says, and they ask him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to take place? So the disciples themselves were looking for a certain degree of prophetic certainty. But do they get prophetic certainty from Jesus? That is to say, look at Mark 13. Do they get a straightforward Perfectly clear, unambiguous, plain language response from Jesus about the things that are going to take place and when those things are going to take place. If that were the case, you wouldn't have four or five major schools of interpretation. And within those schools of interpretation, several dozen variations. You just wouldn't. So the question that was vital... Because when Christians read this passage with the idea that the message Jesus gives us is going to be in plain English, plain Aramaic, uh, unambiguous, perfectly clear, straightforward, when they think that that's what Jesus is going to give them about the future, they will find, as every honest scholar has found, they'll find themselves deeply puzzled. What does a believer do with this feeling of puzzlement, this feeling of a bit of confusion. What do you do with that? What do you do when you're not certain about what Jesus is saying? Well, that state of mind, sadly, has left many people ripe for being exploited and being led astray. That theme underlies this whole passage. That theme underlies other areas of the New Testament that talk about prophecy and its fulfillment. And we'll see that in a few moments. We also have so many examples from church history. There are scores of examples from church history where people were caught up in end-times movements, where they caught the end-times virus. Uh, We can point to the the 1800s, the Millerites. I, I say this again to you, maybe you weren't here before, In the day and age when you didn't have the internet, in the day and age when you didn't even have a telegraph yet, in the day and age in which things were communicated by word of mouth and by letters, 100,000 people sold everything they had and all went to this mountain to await Jesus Christ's physical return to the earth. If in the day and age in which communication was 10,000 times smaller than it is today, What do you think would happen today under such circumstances like that with the Internet? Would it be surprising if millions and millions of people hearing the same kind of message would rally around some kind of place and situation thinking, Jesus is coming back here. That does happen. That kind of thing does happen even today. But it happened significantly all throughout church history. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. So the point is is that when people have read this passage, when they've been confused about this passage, or other prophetic passages, they have looked for some guy who can tell them exactly what's happening. that's the warning of this passage, and we'll see that later on in terms of what Second Peter says. Now, so that 's why coming to this passage, we come with this question: Why then are prophetic messages a challenge to interpretation? Why? Why are they hard to understand? And does God give us prophetic certainty? Connected to this is the question, is this the kind of difficulty we ought to expect in reading the Bible? Why did God give us a Bible in which there are some places that are hard to understand? Did he give us a Bible where there are, in some places, things that are difficult to understand? Well, the one word answer is yes. And again, I'll mention Apostle Peter. We will look at what Peter says about this. He teaches that. But before we get there, I want us to look at four principles of reading prophecy that we find in the Bible, principles that are themselves embedded even in our understanding of these verses from verse 24 to the rest, all of chapter 13. Principles that actually demonstrate why And the interpretation of prophecy is a challenge to us, but not just simply to you and me. It's a challenge to the greatest scholars in the church who have ever lived. So that's the task before us. I want us to look at four basic principles. We can see what's going on in this chapter through the lens of these four basic principles that illustrate the challenge. Uh, The first principle, this is like rule number one Uh, when you're learning how to read the Bible, especially if you're training to be a pastor. Rule number one, symbolic language. Okay? Look at verse 24 and 25. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now, I want you to notice, two verses here, 24, 25. And these two verses, you have symbolic language, figures of speech, mixed in with more literal language. And if you don't recognize that that mixture is going on, you will not be able to interpret those verses correctly. You, there's just not a, a prayer that you'll be able to do so. You see, already Jesus had predicted earlier that what was going to happen to Jerusalem was going to happen... And we know that in A.D. 70, the specific things that Jesus talked about were fulfilled. Jerusalem was surrounded by the armies of Rome. The city was sieged. The city was taken. The walls were destroyed. The city was razed. The temple was completely demolished. We also know that when the Roman legions came in, first of all, and set their insignias inside the temple precincts, But that was an abomination of desolation. That was a desolating sacrilege according to the Jews. So that's described in fairly literal language in terms of what Jesus says. When he speaks about the Great Tribulation, that's an historic thing that we can see that the disciples could look forward to because Jerusalem had been destroyed before. They understood that. They also understood that there had already been an abomination of desolation inside of Jerusalem. That had happened before. Uh, back in verse 15, when Jesus mentions that, and Mark says, "Let the reader understand," the reference is both to a fulfillment of prophetic word and a fulfillment that had already happened in history, already in history, and Antiochus Epiphanes, that Syrian king who was a Gentile, a pagan, had had destroyed the temple and erected a temple or a, a, an altar to Zeus right there. So, uh, that's pretty literal. But now, without showing any kind of break in the language, Jesus moves from that which is literal to that which is symbolic. Specifically, he moves into the symbolic and figurative language of what has been called celestial decreation. The opposite of creation. So what's happening in the heavens is the opposite of creation. The heavens are getting deconstructed. The heavens are getting decreated. Heavenly upheaval. Now, there are those who said, why do you call that figurative language? Why do you think that's symbolic? How do you know that's not really what's going to happen? Okay. That's what's critical here. The language which pictures these great upheavals in the heavenly realms have already been used in the Old Testament again and again to picture, to signal God's judgments on the earth. Now you have to know, that's the way Old Testament prophetic judgments work. It's a regular feature of of the form in which prophecies come in the Old Testament, that the judgment language, when God pronounces judgments upon peoples and upon nations, the language of heavenly decreation occurs. For instance... The language that Jesus uses here is the same language, the same figures of speech that you find in Isaiah chapter 13. In fact, the NIV translation puts quotation marks around it because it's a very, very close uh, resemblance to what has already been said. That chapter begins by announcing an oracle, a judgment against Babylon. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 13 of Isaiah, I'm going to read these words because some things in this passage are very significant. So, the sound of a tumult is on the mountains of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land wail, "...for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble and every heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pains and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath, fierce with anger." to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. We need to note that this whole description here twice mentions the day of the Lord. It also says the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is coming, the day of the Lord is near. The prophecy is about the destruction of Babylon after the exile. The destruction of Babylon after the exile happened in approximately 540 B.C., maybe 550 B.C. The prophecy was given 750 B.C. So the prophet says it's happening soon. Uh, Soon. Who says soon? how do you measure soon? It's 200 years later. You need to keep those ideas in mind, that when prophecy says soon, who's reckoning with whose clock? It's just important to remember that. Further, decreation language is used. Decreation language is the language of judgment. It's always symbolic language, but it has a literal meaning. God's coming to judge, and God will judge. And when God judges, it does have its literal, historical impact and effects upon peoples and nations. So that's the first principle. The recognition that prophetic literature is rife with symbolism, and it mixes symbolic language with literal language. It mentions the descriptions of events that are historical in highly symbolic language, Especially when it's expressing the judgments of God. Second principle, we can call this the iceberg phenomenon. I thought I saw a hand being raised there. <laughs> I wish I could open it up for questions, but I got to keep moving through this. <laughs> it's like at an auction, you scratch your ear and you just ra- raise the bid a thousand bucks. Um, iceberg phenomenon. We need to point out this important aspect of New Testament prophecy because it's often ignored. New Testament prophecy, any place you find it in the New Testament, uses ideas, concepts, events, and types whose meaning has already been established in Old Testament prophecy. That's occurring in verse 26. Notice verse 26 where it says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So a New Testament prophetic statement like this is really like the visible peak of an iceberg when it breaks the surface of the ocean. You know, we commonly hear that 10% shows above, 90% is hidden below the surface. That's the same thing that's happening in a New Testament prophecy when an Old Testament idea or concept is being alluded to or mentioned the meaning of that concept or idea has already been established by the Old Testament. So to read the Bible properly, you've got to study the mountain that doesn't show on the surface of the New Testament text. If you ignore what the Old Testament has to say about a New Testament phrase, a New Testament concept, a New Testament idea, you cannot possibly properly interpret what's being said in the New Testament prophecy. Especially the case in the book of Revelation. Scholars have demonstrated there are no less than 500 references to the Old Testament in the writings of the book of Revelation. Uh, that's why it's such a, a massively challenging book to interpret. Because until you've traced out all of those things and understood all of those things well your ability to understand what's going on in the book of Revelation is going to be severely compromised. So without this underlying Old Testament information, which determines the meaning of the New Testament text, you can't get your interpretation right. That's why whenever we read New Testament prophetic literature using Old Testament language, we must study the Old Testament context. Now, we come to verse 26 and we look at this verse. What's the Old Testament context? It's Daniel chapter 7. That's an extensive vision. We would be doing five or six more sermons if we were to look at Daniel chapter 7 to study all of what that means. It is extensive. It's a, it's a panorama of world history From the time of the the empire of Babylon all the way into the Roman Empire and then the revelation of the kingdom of God and, and, and forever afterwards. But what's important is that the phrase here, the Son of Man, as Jesus describes it, is particularly related to verse 13 in Daniel chapter 7. But you need to understand the vision. The vision is a vision of what's taking place in heaven. The Son of Man coming is to the Ancient of Days in heaven. It's a heavenly coming. That's its meaning in Daniel chapter 7. That's why we have to be careful with how Jesus might be using it in the Olivet Discourse, chapter 13. Here We have to be so careful. Many people think it automatically means the second coming of Christ to earth. But there's every reason to see that you cannot exclude the idea that it might be The ascension of Jesus coming to the throne of God to receive all power and authority. That's why we have to be so careful in our handling of New Testament prophetic text. What you see is the tip of the iceberg. What lies below the surface is a mountain of Old Testament information that has to be taken into consideration. Now, the third principle is telescoping and compression Um, let's look at verses 24 through 27 in light of this principle verses 24 to 27 remember but in those days after that tribulation then it goes on to talk about the sun being darkened and so forth that decreation kind of language verse 26 then the you'll see the son of man coming on the clouds with great power and glory Then verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect together from the four winds. So you see a sequence of things. Tribulation. Judgment language. Vision of the Son of Man coming. The elect being gathered by the angels. Now, telescoping is like this. A prophecy can look forward to future events. Even events that are relatively close historically While at the same time, in the same passage, there can be mingled in with those events things that are actually far more distant, things happening even at the end of history. Now, that's critical. Uh, It's been compared to what it's like to look at a range of mountains, uh, to look at the mountains that are in the foreground and the mountains that are in the background. The mountains in the background will appear deceptively close to the mountains in the foreground. If you've ever driven uh, toward the Rockies from the east and seen that, you've seen successive ranges, and they can be separated by large distances. It's also what happens when you look through a telescope. Uh, if you've ever done anything like that, looking at ranges of things, and if unless you have a range finder, the thing that you see after the first thing looks amazingly and deceptively close, and yet it can be separated by quite a distance. See, telescoping, an actual telescope, it, it actually uh, shortens the distance perspective. Prophetic telescoping shortens the distance perspective. It even compresses it. When this happens in a prophecy, most often the passage you're reading does not tell you this is happening. You hear that? You don't have clues or indicators within the text that this compression and telescoping is actually happening. Let me give a prime Old Testament example. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. We read it at Christmas times. It's about the coming of the Messiah. It's a passage where it talks about a shoot shall grow up from the stem of Jesse. And it describes the sevenfold nature of the Spirit empowering Christ. But then it immediately goes on to talk about the wolf lying down with the lamb, and the little child playing over the hole of the asp of a, of a snake that's an asp, dangerous, poisonous snake. And then it goes on to talk about the the reign of of the Messiah uh, and ruling all of the nations. Now, you notice you get a succession of events there. It's in one passage that is to be read as a unit. 1 through 12 is a clearly cut a unit. But you look at this and you say, All of these things are supposed to have taken place when Jesus came. All of these things. Or from the Jewish perspective, Old Testament. All of these things were supposed to have taken place when the Messiah came. But did they? Has the curse been removed? Does Jesus rule all the earthly nations? Uh, All those things that were expected, have they all taken place with the first coming of the work of Christ? Well, the answer is no. No. So you've got the total scope of the work of Christ presented as though it all happens at one time. This is compression. Or consider Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. We looked at this verse, these two verses, back on Palm Sunday. Because Zechariah 9 is about what happens on Palm Sunday. It's about Jesus riding into Jerusalem as though he were the conquering king, on a donkey. But then if you read immediately verse 10, it talks about his rule from sea to sea. The entire work of the Messiah given in two verses. His coming into Jerusalem, his complete and entire reign over everything. The one verse flows seamlessly into the other. But the one was fulfilled A.D. 70. The second, most would say, hasn't yet been fulfilled. The point is this. Old Testament prophecies telescope and compress near events with further and more distant events. A single prophecy, when we read it, it can have a perspective on that which is close Seamlessly woven into, mingled in with, something that's far, far future. This happens without the text announcing. We're jumping from the first coming to the second coming. You find no break in the flow of the words as well. Here's an example I don't include in my notes. It's one that actually signaled this to me years and years ago. I couldn't understand what was going on. But Jesus goes to Nazareth. This is Luke chapter 4, I believe. He's given the scroll in the synagogue on on the Sabbath day in Nazareth. He opens it up and he reads from Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to announce good news to the poor. And then it goes on to talk about a year of the Lord's mercy and a day of vengeance and wrath. The truth is, go back and look at that in Isaiah, that's the whole pericope. That's the whole unit. Jesus stops. Jesus stops after saying, to announce a year of the Lord's favor. He doesn't continue with the rest of the verse. And he doesn't continue because what he says when he finishes that point is, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. This much, not the day of vengeance, not the day of wrath. This much is fulfilled in your hearing. And yet, the Old Testament saints reading that would have put these two things right together: the day of God's mercy, or the the year of God's mercy, the day of God's wrath. They wouldn't have seen any separation of those things. They would have looked at that and said simultaneously. And so their thought would have been, mercy to the Jews, <laughs> wrath on everybody else. Sadly, they were mistaken because, in fact, A.D. 70 was a time of great wrath upon the Jews and the going forth of the gospel, great mercy upon everyone else. Now, this could be a very important perspective when you look at Mark 13, reading verses 24 to 27. Often, Bible interpreters have taken these four verses as a unit that are historically close together, but we're not compelled to take that approach. We're not required to. The text in no way insists that we take all of these things as happening at exactly the same time. The principle of telescoping may well suggest some widely separated periods of time within these events. Thus, although it may be, and it does look like, the tribulation that happens to Jerusalem is simultaneously the great judgment, so the judgment language fits, the coming of the Son of Man upon the clouds is that Jesus coming back to earth then? Or is it Jesus going for his ascension in terms of receiving all power and authority then? And the elect being gathered by the angels. Did that happen then? Or is that something that could be happening still now? That's the point. We have to be so careful about our interpretation of these things because distant things, near things, are in fact so often compressed As you read Old Testament prophecy, it's the very nature of biblical prophecy to do so. Now, the fourth principle. It's the one I like the most. It's the before and after principle of interpretation. This principle basically means this. There is no certain way to untangle the exact sequence and timing of things before they happen. Until the prophetic picture fully develops in history, we can't really determine How much was symbolic, how much was literal, literal, how much was close at hand, how much was further at hand. In other words, the certainty we can have about biblical prophecy lies in its fulfillment. Before prophecy is fulfilled, we can do our best to work out what's going to happen, what's going to come. But we can't be dogmatic. We can't be certain that it's exactly going to be that way. Great example. Psalm 22, which we know as the crucifixion psalm. It fully demonstrates this principle. Before Jesus' death, and this psalm was written almost a thousand years before Christ by David. Before Jesus' death, the Jews read this psalm, thought about the psalmist, because it's in the first person and all these different things happening to him, but had no idea, number one, that this was messianic. No, and number two, they had no idea that this was a crucifixion. It was not recognizable to them as a crucifixion because at that time in history, crucifixion was unknown in the Middle East. It began about 500 years later in Persia, eventually made it into the Roman Empire. It's only after Jesus was crucified that this psalm was then recognized as predicting all of these things about how Jesus was going to die. That's the clarity that came from the fulfillment. But before the fulfillment, there was not clarity in this prophetic passage at all. Now, I think that's how we need to approach verses 24, 25, 26, 27, and in many ways, all of chapter 13. There's no certain way to untangle all of the exact sequence of timing of these events before they happen. Now, the point is this. These principles embedded in Scripture are necessary, and they're unavoidable if we're going to handle the Bible faithfully. The quest for prophetic certainty is not itself biblical. Now, how do we know this? Well, look at verse 32. Jesus himself, while he was on earth and teaching his disciples, did not claim prophetic certainty in terms of his own knowledge, Uh, in his humanity, he did not know himself how exactly all things would play out with respect to the future. This is what he told his disciples. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So Jesus states that, that... he himself did not have prophetic certainty in this regard. He told his disciples that they did not have prophetic certainty. In fact, in four different ways, verses 32 to 37, Jesus emphasizes the unknowability of that day when Jesus would come. And for that reason, they needed to be diligent, vigilant, and awake. Now, this boundary. This, this limiting of the knowledge of prophetic events, that's something God himself has said. It's like Deuteronomy 29:29: The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the works of the law. So when we read and interpret the Bible, we must do so in a manner that respects and follows the limitations that God has set. Now, at the beginning of of, of the message, I I indicated, or I asked the question, is this limitation of what we can know about prophecy and scripture, this difficulty, is it a difficulty that the Bible would lead us to expect? Did God give us a Bible that in some places, difficult, hard to understand? I said the answer is yes. So we look at 2 Peter. I, I put the whole passage there in the handout. 2 Peter Chapter 3, 10 to 18. I'm going to begin at verse 15. Peter is specifically writing about end times kinds of things. What was happening in the early 60s, about 30 years after Jesus, with respect to people saying, well, where's the promise of his coming? Peter's addressing this sort of end times questioning, end times stuff. So he says in verse 15, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, Peter points out that Paul has also spoken about end times kinds of stuff. He says that in reading Paul, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Then Peter describes how these... these, um, end times teachings are handled by the ignorant and unstable. They twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Church history has borne out Peter's observation any number of times. But the really important thing is Peter's exhortation. He says take care not to be led astray by the error of lawless people so as not to lose your stability. Instead we are to grow in the grace of and the knowledge of Jesus. That note toward the end of Peter's letter touches upon where Peter started his letter, chapter 1, where he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. In other words, Except the biblical truth that our interpretation of New Testament prophecy carries a measure of uncertainty. God's not given us the ability to know the future with certainty. For this reason, the godliest of biblical scholars recognize that they come to different conclusions. The best among them humbly admit their conclusions are tentative, not definitive, held in humility, not dogmatism. Our concern is to be focused on Christ, knowing him, his life, godliness, the calling to his glory and excellence. Jesus died so that you would know salvation. Jesus didn't die so that you would know how all of it would work out. Let's pray. Father, help us then to not be puzzled to the point of A curiosity that is simply beyond the revelation that you've given us in Scripture. Help us to accept the fact that there are things in Scripture difficult to understand. Place our focus upon that which is of first importance. Growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us at all times to realize that we must stay focused on Christ. That at all times we need to be alert, stay awake, We need to pursuing the things which you've called us to pursue, life and godliness in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.